0: Welcome to the Evolving Accountant Podcast. We all know that some accountants can be boring, but definitely not this one. Why talk trial balances and P&L when we can get ripped jeans into the boardroom and hear business insights from people who have really walked the talk? Get ready, here comes an all-new episode with your host, Darren Wingfield. Hi there, and welcome to another
1: episode of the Evolving Accountant Podcast, powered by Harlan's Accountants. Delighted today that I'm joined by Michael Goldstein, founder of Prosecco Ventures. For our listeners out there, Michael, can we kick things off by you sharing a little bit about yourself, but more importantly, what your drive is to get out of bed in the morning?
0: Okay. Hi, guys. I'm Michael Goldstein from Prosecco Ventures. I'm an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur. I'm a marketer by trade, essentially, that I spent many years in that path. And what gets me out of bed in the morning is building uh, Prosecco's most recognized brand. That's what I obsess about pretty much 24-7.
1: Cool. So obviously, you've used the E word already, entrepreneur. Let's talk a little bit about your career or your journey. What's it been like till we get to the Prosecco Venture days?
0: So I've had a kind of an interesting iteration. Probably only had one one job where I was actually working as an employee, When I came out of university, I learned how to do things, how not to do things, but I was fortunate to work with a Hollywood type entrepreneur that had a kind of an ethos that if someone closes a door, no problem. Go through a window. If the window is locked, find a way to make a hole in the wall. So a very tenacious results orientated individual that I worked for that, and that kind of, that ethos has kind of stayed with me ever since I was 20 something. And And that's how kind of how I approach business day to day. I've had various iterations, I've had various startups, I've had various wins, various fails. The word entrepreneur is, I think, often misunderstood. So many times I join groups for, you know, on LinkedIn or there's a WhatsApp group that recently I was added to that are supposed to be founders and entrepreneurs. And I'm looking at it and it's really no better than a Craigslist classified of people looking for jobs and very few founders. And so people think that they're an entrepreneur, but what that really means is is being responsible for others. Yes, you have to earn money, but very often you can't do things yourself. You need to understand who, to, which teams to hire, which skill sets to hire, how to fund those people. And a big challenge that I've always had as an entrepreneur is that balance between, you know, having a, an idea in the ether, bringing that vision to life, the cost associated of doing that, hiring so-called experts to help me go and execute that. And very often those experts fall short and they, and I end up becoming an employment agency, which pretty resonates with many real entrepreneurs uh, that are funding their own businesses, that there's an opportunity cost for every dollar or pound that they spend. And so when you hire someone, you expect them to be an expert or a black belt in their trade. And when they're not, it's very, very disappointing. And looking back on my career, when we've been, when I've been well-funded you know, you make those mistakes and it's a couple of thousand pounds or dollars when I was living in the States and it's every few months or whatever is that, you know, that you're paying people and something that becomes 10, $20,000. Now when it's other people's money, it hurts because you're responsible, but it doesn't hurt as much as when it's coming directly out of your pocket. And you look at the, not just the money and the opportunity cost around the money, but the time spent sailing in the wrong direction or, or just treading water. Yeah, being an entrepreneur is not all it's cut up to be. When you're funded, it's fantastic. And when things are sailing great, it's uh, it's great. There are more challenges which make the wins that much better. And that's been my experience of being an entrepreneur. Cool. So can we go
1: live briefly and uh, have an overview of what Prosecco Ventures does, its history, sure. and in your opinion, what sets it apart in the market?
0: Okay. Technically, without using buzzwords, which I try and avoid, When I was living in the States, as a marketer, I was referred to as a growth hacker. What that means is that, to give an analogy, people build nice, shiny platforms online, like Riverside that we're using today, this podcast software. And then they struggle or are unsure how to bring an audience to to use the platform and monetize the platform. So that's never really been my issue since the MySpace days, or before even, I was trading audience. Right. So I would kind of benchmark if a client would have a budget of X, I would be able to benchmark within 5% what we're doing. And so that was my history. I got a bit disenchanted with online to answer a question in a roundabout way about, you know, what, why I kind of how I got into Prosecco Ventures. And I was looking to get into a widget business, partly because when I would speak to my friends and family and explain the ones and zeros of online marketing and offline marketing and, and the data behind it, the eyes would glaze over and just would not understand what I'm talking about and so um i looked to getting involved in health and fitness product businesses which i'm passionate about and i just didn't really discover any defensive ip that would prevent others from replicating what i was doing or indeed me prevent me me from replicating other companies and really the only requirement was how much capital you can raise to go and build those things which wasn't ideal um i was visiting italy several times and met with some kind of high profile individuals in the Veneto region, which is where they make Prosecco and uh, the Veneto region is between Venice and Cortina. And that Northeastern region is responsible for the highest GDP in all of Italy. So when you go there, you feel like the people you meet are very, very smartly dressed. They're all very business orientated. The English or the English idea that Italians are, um, I don't want to use the word lazy, but like taking a siesta and nothing gets done is very, very incorrect when it comes to nor- the Northern Italians, right? The Venetians, that Veneto group. When I was there, I was really, really impressed with the people in, in that region. know, my first meetings would start at 8am and very often we would go through until 1am, right? At lunchtime, I'm starving. I have to stop them and say, hey, can we get a break here? We're supposed to be in Italy. The food's great here. Can we get something to eat? They're like, oh, okay. So I'm in Italy. I'm sitting in a couple of meetings, and I discover that Prosecco is not just the region's biggest export, but it is Italy's largest commodity export. I'm like, wow, what do you mean by that? So at the time, they were exporting approximately 550 million bottles of Prosecco a year worldwide. Oh, wow, that sounds like a lot. How many, I asked the question, how many pr- bottles of Prosecco, oh, sorry, how many bottles of Champagne sell from the region, from sh- the region of France? They said, oh, 200, 300 million at the time. And I was like, wow, okay. Obviously, there's a big pr- difference in price. Champagne is perceived as a luxury item. It's always a premium price point. And Prosecco and the people, you know, kind of sailing that ship over the over the last 20 years, sadly, in the UK, the price has been driven down into a commodity kind of very price sensitive item. But having said that, when I'm sitting in the meeting, I thought Prosecco was the brand. As naive as that sounds, even today, I've been in the business a while, like I do this regular stop, i target audience, which is mostly a female demographic of drinkers in the UK and the US. And I say, hey, like, do you drink Prosecco? Oh, I love Prosecco. Great. Like, Very rarely do I hear someone that doesn't like Prosecco. And if they don't, it's because they don't drink at all. But assuming that the answer is yes, I'm like I hey, great uh, like can you what's your favorite brand of prosecco? Like what do you mean? So either they believe that prosecco is the brand which means there's an interesting opportunity for us or the best answer I've got is oh I can't remember the name of the brand but I know the color of the label that's the best answer that I've had but that's really surprising there's a number of reasons why that is but that kind of got me into figuring out what this business could be And during that period of time, I was looking at, I was in California. I had just come back from a music festival called Coachella, which is a very, it's now quite, it's now commercialized, but it's that celebrity influencer packed event. I think it's what Glastonbury wishes it could be, but because of the weather that we have in the UK, it's never going to be like that. You have to understand Coachella is in the desert. It's 110 degrees at the time, 100 degrees at the time of year that it's playing. It's very, very well organized and most celebrities live in LA or New York and it's very easy for them to get in. So the spend and the, the, uh, the look there. So what happened was I'd come back from Coachella and Moet and Chandon had done an activation there and it was beautiful girls in sundresses, a few guys, but I mean, considering there's 400,000 people there, right? But it was mostly girls, attractive girls in sundresses, looking fabulous. Drinking Moe and taking pictures and putting it on their Instagram. In contrast, I'd also come back from a weekend with the Italian consortium that that manages the steering committee for Prosecco and and the Farmers Association, the producers. And I was their guest, which had a fantastic weekend, at the Enzo Ferrari track in Italy. And they sponsor, uh, at the time they were sponsoring Superbike, which is motorcycles that race around a track at 160 to 210 kilometers an hour. I mean, very noisy, very fast. Very exciting as a guy. But when I sat with the colleagues of mine and the Italians, I was like, listen, guys, I've just come back from these two things. I want to compare what, what Prosecco is doing and what Superbike is doing, uh, and what, um, Moe is doing. I said, so this is the Instagram feed for a Superbike. It's guys in tattoo, you know, guys with tattoos, petrol heads, motorcycles, the occasional girl with an umbrella that says Prosecco doc. And I'm like, that's great. Right. You can see Prosecco Dock when the the bikes fly around the track at 200 kilometers an hour. And at the end of of the whoever wins, you know, the winners are shaking up a bottle of Prosecco on the podium. But it's not clear whether it's Prosecco, even though it says Prosecco. Is it it a champagne? It's like they're trying to be champagne. As a marketer now, take, take a step back from Prosecco. So. Then I said, this is what Moe is doing. And I showed them the feed from Moe. It's beautiful girl after beautiful girl holding bottles of Moe. Free promotion. I mean, it costs them money to promote, but no one's being paid to stand there. And I'm like, who do you want to be? You want to be Superbike? You want to be Moe? Uh, Moe. So these guys are like, ah, Katzo, Vaimona, we want to be Moe. I was like, okay, cool. So let me create a brand with you guys as partners to try and figure this out. And... I, I went down this path that when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And I ended up creating a, a test brand, like on a, on a kind of a, it was a bit of a rush. So I just happened to get it right. I just did an analysis of all the top bottles between champagne, carver and Prosecco. What I imagined that Moe sundress female drinker would resonate towards and sketched up something that we wrapped a, a temporary bottle. And I shipped it to Miami and over a short period of time, three or four days, I suddenly get coverage and daily mail vanity fair, L magazine, all these beautiful women walking, walking the runway for sports illustrated swimwear edition, these kinds of things. And I granted it's Miami. So it's, everything's hot and sexier, right? So it doesn't necessarily always translate to the UK always, but like these girls, are influencers and talent. They don't need me to give them a, a glass of Prosecco, right? They've got guys that are lining up to go and buy them bottles of champagne at the restaurants and the clubs, right? That's just the way Miami is set up in any city. And many of them are doing well already. They can buy their own champagne or Prosecco. They don't need me to give them anything. So uh what came of that was the coverage was that Princey Pesta at the time was not just uh, a drink, but a, a fashion accessory. I say all this because I was hoping to do it with Italian partners at the time. I mean, we had an Italian winery, but I was hoping to have like financial stakeholders, real partners, but everyone just sat back. I mean, maybe it's, it it was, uh, there was a number of reasons for that clash of personalities. A lot of people want to be in charge. Who's going to run, who's going to run things. I'm like, well, it was my concept. Let me take this forward. Fast forward, we get all this coverage and then get hit with uh, a cease and desist like I'm supposed to be a professional, supposed to know what I'm doing. I'm a marketing expert. When I talk about black belts, not making mistakes, right? This is a mistake I shouldn't have made. And I looked at the uh, the infringement and technically we could have won a case, right? It was, it was an overreaching cease and desist. However, on the advice of... The trademark attorneys and I sat I sat with four or five different specialists. They said to me, it's gonna cost between twenty and forty thousand dollars to challenge this. It's gonna take at least two years to get into an appeal and to go backwards and forwards. And in the meantime, the company that's challenging is Italian, your product's Italian. If you ignore them and just put your product into production and put it into a container, they can block your shipment at the port and it will sit there indefinitely. So you have to make a decision. Do you really, really want this name, Principessa, <laughs> Or can you figure something else out? So this is kind of an entrepreneurial story, right? That you've, done, you've proven that you can do something. You get success. And then, like when I talk to uh, to friends that have been in like the Y Combinator in San Francisco, right? This is kind of a compromise. And so you get hit with a lawsuit. You get hit, you know, someone's suing you for usage or to, trying to stop you doing something. Or making a claim that somehow that they should be involved with you, whatever whatever it is, the guys at Y Combinator are interesting. Is that they look at that as a good thing? Uh, as a, someone that's a bit more long in the tooth, I also look at it as a good thing. It means you have something that people want and it's worth protecting. But as a, if my, my younger self perhaps would have been a bit more phased, because lawsuits are expensive. Right. Traditionally, you think you can do something for a couple of thousand and and figure it out. And certainly in America, it gets very expensive. And so fast forward, I was stuck in the the mud, had to figure something else out. There was, I didn't want to wait two years. I built some goodwill around the Princey Pesta name. Uh, I'd done a lot of work, right. In terms of uh, like real, real physical cash that I had spent for the time, I'd probably spent $70,000 testing an idea which was maybe a bit foolhardy at the time of my savings. Um and I was like if I don't fix it I've just kissed that goodbye. So I then figure out a trademark solution and I basically rebrand under a new trademark completely which is unrelated to principessa called bella principessa. And I say it's unrelated because according to the trademark office um and the companies itself right but according to the trademark office Princey and Bella Princi are two completely different terms, even though they, they share, share a commonality. So there was a whole, I mean, I can get a whole trademark IP story another time. But basically, I went through, I invested in Bella Princi and secured the worldwide rights to use that brand in the States, in the UK, in Europe with rights to extend it into Russia and China if and when I choose to. And then since then, you know, it sounds, you you know, you say it, like I say it quickly, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but when I look at how much money I've spent just on trademarks for Bella Principessa and previously the failed Principessa, you know, as an entrepreneur, if you're self-funding trying to prove that you can do something that was way more expensive than I anticipated there's probably $60,000 of trademarks just to, just to to get that. So again, when business is good, and at the time I had an agency business where I was doing marketing, you know, I'm just firing from the hip. I'm like, you know, okay, screw it. I've just made some money here, put some money, just pay this attorney, let's just get this done. It's an interesting thing when, when it comes to IP because when you're, as an entrepreneur, like now I'm going out for funding, like you need to show that you have defensive IP. You have to show you have some value. And it's different in terms of consumer packaged goods or alcohol in our case, right? than it is perhaps in tech, right? The trademarks in tech are less important early on. And it's more about what, what is patentable, right? That you mm-hmm. can protect that way. What processes you can protect. And, and that was my background before and I have a patent that I co-wrote with friends of mine when I was in my twenties that was in, in the camera technology space. So I'm, I'm familiar with that process, but again, approaching things. From like a growth hacker mindset and trying to apply it to alcohol and beverages and, and consumer packaged goods. I had to decide what has value taking it forward, right? Because if I can't prove that someone wants Bella Principessa, if I can't prove that that's even protectable, right? Then what are they funding? Right? They can just buy a bottle of Prosecco. <laughs> so that's kind of where I went. Um, the journey since then has been challenging because i'm still self-funded i'm still uh, i'm I'm kind of at the point where i'm embarrassed to say how much money i've put into this friends of it's, it's interesting i have two sets of friends right friends of mine that are in the uk um are commercial property guys typically hedge fund guys private equity guys uh they specialize in oil and gas or they specialize in commercial real estate or residential real estate. They understand bricks and mortar uh, or they invest in public companies, right? So they're running a big fund, fund to fund. Some of them, when they look at what I'm doing, just don't understand why, like, I don't, why are you doing this? This is, there's easier ways to make money. Like, why are you, why are you so passionate about creating a Prosecco brand? On the flip side, the other friends I have in the United States where everything seems to move very fast, where numbers are just that much bigger immediately understand what I'm doing because they've seen the exits that are achievable in the United States. If you can create a drinks brand, specifically an alcohol brand, but drinks in general um, that is, that has brand recognition that consumers really want that a conglomerate will recognize, wow, you've innovated where we were unable to innovate It fits into our portfolio without a conflict. And if we join you or bring you into the family, we can help you reduce your cost of goods very quickly because we have buying power. We have a huge network that you're, that you as by joining our portfolio, you can plug into and we can increase your value very quickly. And lastly, you know, they have obligations to their shareholders and uh, much like the hospitality business where you have two bars that open up side by side, for example, right? The idea that there's two sets of consumer going to two different bars is wrong. It's those bars are competing for the same consumer. It's just who has the better offering of where the consumer is going to go. So ultimately, you know, our conglomerate future conglomerate partner recognizes that they're not creating new customers. They have to buy brands, that are, that already have the customers that they want so they can increase their shares price. Does that make sense? And that's so for true. us, the way I approach Prosecco and Bella Principezza as our brand is that our, our, I'm not trying to create a brand for my father or my mother. I mean, I'd like them to like it and they do. They enjoy Bella Principezza Prosecco, but that's, that's not our audience. Our audience is like my nephew's age, who's 22 years old, that has a great circle of friends. They're very social. They're, they're in a band. He's in a band. They go to clubs. They're kind of coming up in the world. And they're at the age where they haven't decided which whiskey they want to drink. They haven't decided what champagne they want to drink. They haven't decided whether, the, whether Prosecco is a good thing or a bad thing, right? If we create a brand that resonates with them, that gives them an experience, that gives them kind of an emotional uh, connection, then we've we've won that consumer for that life cycle as they get older, assuming we're not doing something that is um, so trendy that it falls out of fashion tomorrow, right? and And yeah. Prosecco is a timeless, iconic drink. The lifestyle of that dolce vita guys in chip white cipriani waiters serving you something that I, I experienced firsthand in Italy is something that never goes out of fashion. And I didn't experience it here in the UK. I didn't experience it when I was in the States. And I feel like, okay, great. That is the experience we can bring to this next generation of consumer that's looking for that experience that wants to be classy, but doesn't want to spend $200 to buy a bottle of champagne, but would be happy to spend $20 or whatever it is on a bottle of Bella Princey Prosecco that gives them that experience and says they have a bit of style and a bit of taste. I think there's a lot of things we touched upon there. So here's a controversial question. Please. Why? I've been to
1: Italy, been to Lake Garda, and I guess the whole... In, uh, Lake Garda. Oh, so, Lake Garda, yeah. Uh, so if we use Italy as an example versus yeah. the UK, why does Prosecco in Italy taste better than when it's been exported over here? Is Italy keeping the good stuff for themselves?
0: <laughs> okay. So that's a great question that is a i believe that's a misconception okay. okay so it's it's a yes and no answer the small family owned vineyards that produce 50 to 100,000 bottles a year those bottles don't leave italy it's not a big order particularly right and like it's already pre-purchased right it's already gone like they they would love to be in america and grow their brand in america they would love to grow their brand in the uk they just don't produce enough Product, right? That they can support to go anywhere else outside of their cap of what the farm is capable of producing. Then there is different. And this kind of maybe leads on. You asked me earlier before we started just about the different types of Prosecco. So there are different grades of grapes. There are different grades of Prosecco. So if if when, next time you go to the supermarket or next time you're at a bar and you ask for a bottle of Prosecco, ask to have a look at the bottle, and you'll see there's a sticker on the back of the, the the on the top of the foil that's been put there. It's a legal sticker. One of those stickers is DOC, which is Prosecco DOC. And that is the that is um the domain originale controllata It basically confirms the authenticity of the product and that's a wide region. And that accounts for six hundred million bottles or five hundred and fifty million bottles of Prosecco worldwide. Okay. Then you have The next step up, which is DOCG, and I'm simplifying. Obviously, there's different grades in between here, but let's just keep it simple. The DOCG is sometimes the same farmers, but that own farms higher up the hill. So the DOC farms are typically in the flats. As you get higher up the hill, you're in the DOCG region, which is steeper inclines, arguably has better mineral content, better terroir, to use you know French terms in terms of the soil. Capacity for for growth and there's just less grapes available because the grapes are steeper, right? It's on steeper hills, um and that will t- typically cost more. The challenge that we have, oh, and, and, and the, sorry, the third one, which is the the champagne of Prosecco, is referred to as Cartizze. Now, it's very rare that you'll get Cartizze in the United Kingdom because the average cost on a bottle is forty five pounds. Sixty-five pounds, hundred pounds, yeah. and the reason that it's that price is because there's one hill, so I'm by a consortium of a few farmers, and uh, they produce less than a million bottles a year in that t- in that region. It could be even less than that. I have to check the exact numbers, right? So that's not a lot, and that that product doesn't leave Italy very rarely. Like the majority of that product, and even if it did leave Italy. This is the, the challenge that we have as Prosecco Ventures and the challenge I have as an entrepreneur and the challenge that every Prosecco producer has, right? That if you want to sell a premium product, consumers don't know the difference between Prosecco, Prosecco DOC, Prosecco DOCG, or Cartizze. All they know is Prosecco. So when you're going to Aldi or Morrison's or um, Sainsbury's, for example, like the big those big retailers, the average sales price of, of Prosecco is under ten pounds. Like sometimes it could be as seven or eight pounds, seven ninety-nine. You've seen it on on sale, right? It's that's a really good cool price. When you understand that the I mean you're working for a, the podcast is for a tax company, right? So or an accounting company, the duty in the United Kingdom is punitive. It's two right now, it used to be two pound eighty-six on every bottle of prosecco, which would also be the same if it was a bottle of champagne at a higher price point. Now it's two pound eighteen. So when you understand that if you, if you're buying something on the shelf at 7.99, take off 2.18 in tax in the duty, then there's the VAT, then there's the logistics, then there's the cost of the glass, then there's the cost of the grapes and the juice, then there's the cost of the capsule and everything else that goes on it, right? That's before you've done anything. Like, what are you buying? You understand it's it's an inexpensive yeah. product. So when you say that you're tasting prosecco that you think is an inferior quality. It's not that it's in an inferior quality, you're just buying product that has been commoditized at the lowest possible price point, so you're not getting the best quality prosecco that you can possibly get. You're getting something decent probably for that price, but it's not Prosecco DOCG, it's certainly not Bella Principessa. Mm-hmm. You know, our goal with, with Bella Principessa, the the ultimate litmus test for us, right, is that if we put our bottle in a blind test, taste test, with someone that is traditionally a champagne drinker. And they like our product. In fact, they like it so much they want to buy our product. That's the ultimate litmus test, right? So we, you know, we target, we have two types of consumer, right? Ultimately, we're targeting the next generation of Bella Principesses, right? That are coming up that 20 something, 30 something group, right? But if that older group of women that are 40 something, 50 something married, divorced, that want something quality, don't necessarily worry about what the price is, whether it's 10 pounds or 20 pounds, it doesn't make any difference. They're more 50 pounds, 60 like They're not looking at the bill, right? Mm-hmm. If we can win them over, which we've done with Bella Principe, so that is the ultimate litmus test because the, the upcoming Bella Principes want to get to where they will be. That's the natural transition, right, in terms of taste palette, hopefully earning potential influence, you know. That's where we're going. Cool. So obviously we've gone on a bit of a
1: whistle-stop tour there of a few things. Well, it's a conversation we're having, right? It's that 100%, 100%. I... Mean, of this, 100%. Right? So you've referenced that you're a marketer, or sure. I'm going to use your state's term, growth hacker. What strategies or marketing techniques yeah. have you found most effective in pr- promoting your current Prosecco brand and reaching your target audience? I appreciate we spoke about the Moa scenario versus the Superbike tattoo guys. Is there sort of a, a digital version uh, without using influencers that you found most beneficial?
0: So I can speak about two different things: where we are today, whereas where we have the potential to go. Okay, so I think what when you know this is right now I'm raising capital. The purpose of raising capital is to go beyond where I've been. So I've self-funded. My the Bella Principessa Prosecco Ventures project. I've got significant risk capital and skin in the game, not to mention my own time. But you can't build for that. That's not really what investors care about. They, they expect that when you're when you're creating something. Um, i validated that we have something that people want in the tests that we've done with the audience that we've been able to attract. Um, and I've been focused on custom, on on perfecting our product and providing a customer-centric experience to high-end hotels and restaurants that we are in prestigious places to make sure that we can support them in a manner that we can, right? So now the disconnect perhaps is that when people look at Bella Principessa and they go to prosecco.com, which is, is our, our is our business address, right? Online. There's a bit of a disconnect because we look like we're a much more established company than we are. And when you go on the social media, there's a, a disconnect with kind of stop and start, um, content because I had to make a choice as an entrepreneur. Do I fund ego and vanity to say, Hey, people love our brand. Look, you know, th- this girl's drinking it. This guy's drinking it, which is important, by the way, in terms of growing a, a brand and creating value around the brand, or do I focus on consolidating intellectual property that's valuable to us and our future stakeholders in growing a business. So when I talk about defensive IP earlier, one of the things that I made a conscious decision to do personally that I licensed to the company is that I acquired uh, the online assets for all things Prosecco, specifically Prosecco.com ProseccoWine.com, ProseccoDOC.com. I mean, a lot of different high value domain names specific for our, our industry that have the potential to attract, according to Google, uh, up to a million searches a month globally. So the way I, uh, the way I look at it is that with the right stakeholders and with capital support, our aim and our potential is to surpass the fame of any individual winery so if a big brand or a big producer ends up investing or reinvesting in their brand to go and tell people they're doing things that's great like kylie kylie minogue has her prosecco company here her brand here right she's doing a fantastic job promoting it she's hands-on which i love to see Um, but it doesn't matter the more she promotes kylie prosecco the more people discover prosecco.com right so the way i kind of Describe it to well, the strategy is that ultimately, if you're familiar with in America, there's a famous potato chips crisps they call it potato chips. They called Lay's potato chips. You familiar with this brand? Yeah, it's, now, like, oh, it's owned by Pepsi. Yeah, and so or well, Lay's Pepsi. It's a that's it's however they set the company up. But the like our goal, like what is more valuable, Lay the the the, the brand holder for Lay's potato chips or the farmer that grows the potato that gets cut up and put in the back, right? The brand has more value. 100%. So the way I'm positioning Prosecco.com, the way I'm positioning Bella Principessa and the other brands that I'm creating and rolling out, which we can talk about if you want, um, is that that is our goal. We don't have, we don't own 140 hectares of vineyards. We don't have four generations of winemaking experience. You know what? Our partners, have that and we rely on them to do, you know, to provide us with the best quality product. We can customize taste profiles the way we want. We want for our our demographic, but we rely on them and their expertise. What we do own is that last mile of discovery that we haven't really taken full advantage of yet. Because again, there's only so much I can do off the back of my credit cards and savings. And at certain point. Okay. We've proven that we have something valuable. We've done a lot. Now it's time to find real stakeholders that, that our vision resonates with and wants to support us and go, wow, we can join you and we can add this much value beyond capital. And so previously when I've had opportunities, perhaps to take capital, I didn't take the capital because there was nothing beyond the capital, right? It was, and, that, and by the way, it's, it's nice to have capital. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking it, but I think now I've got to the stage where. Having strategic capital, people that can join the army right the like i I look at it like um i mean maybe i'm i'll, sound, I'll stop if I sound too grandiose, so I look at it uh, what we are doing like running a political campaign, so when I looked at being a marketer and a hacker i like like everything always comes back to Prosecco for me, so when I look at what politicians are doing and how they're getting those those stories across certain things resonate and go, wow, that applies to how we want to market bella principessa and prosecco.com. So in 2008, Obama had an online campaign that was run by a guy called Chris Hughes, if I remember correctly, that came out of Facebook. And Obama and his team pioneered community marketing. Like they took what had been done beforehand and put it on on steroids. So they provided the tools online that if you want, if you like Obama, you could log in, join the community, and they will give you the tools to throw your own kind of Obama drinks party at your home and your for your community of neighbors. So you could tell them why they should vote for Obama. Okay. It was like an like an Amway uh, MLM model, right? Like a Tupperware party, but instead it was like. Buy the stickers, buy the banners, buy whatever it is. And it was, it was revolutionary. And interestingly enough, Obama, um, and that, that, camp owned that technology. They never gave that technology to the Democrats. That was their own technology separately that they built. Similarly, when you look at Donald Trump in 2016, you no, know, he's a polarizing figure, but he figured out how to build communities and have communities Really get behind him in much much the same way, right? And understood the value of social media, understood the value of the mainstream media, and kind of every time people were being negative about him, he kind of lent into it. There's a famous book called the Lord, the Forty Eight Laws of Power. Are you familiar with this book? I'm not sure. It's by an author called Robert Greene. I read it like a Bible. I think it's it's one of the books that are by my. I wanna say it's by my bedside, but it's close to my bedside. And it's one of those things that I can pick up and put down, read a page or two, put it back and and have remembered something. And it talks about famous, famous leaders in history of people that obeyed laws and, and ignored laws. So it's I highly recommend. But like in the case of, of Donald Trump, you know, he lent into things which gave him more notoriety and more popularity. So when I look at what we're doing for Prosecco with the capital that we will raise, it's much the same kind of strategy. Our goal and our in the way I think is, how do we build pockets of communities that really, really love Bella Principessa? How can they share that with their communities, their neighbors? And how can we reward them for doing that? Like that's, that's the ultimate goal. Do I have all the answers today? No, and some of them I figured out, but until we have the capital, I can't execute those ideas and you have to wait and see, but like that's, that's the logic behind much of the stuff that I approach. And again, it sounds grandiose, but my, my goal is to create, you know, a very valuable, very recognized Prosecco brand that when people think Prosecco and they think premium, they think Bella a Perfect. (laughs) So a
1: couple of quick questions from me, Michael. I appreciate what spoke about the events around the MotoGP and the music festivals and stuff. Mm-hmm. Have you got any other memorable stories or experiences related to running Prosecco Ventures that's involved with other collaborations that's worked well or that other FMCG businesses could learn from you on?
0: Sure. So my personality type that I've grown into since being that 20 something that worked for that Hollywood producer that encouraged me to break down or go through a window or break down a door to go and make something happen. And, and as soon as you, if you want to you know get, have gun, we'll travel, right? Get on a plane. I'll come see you. Let's get a deal done that they're very fast moving um, solution orientated, not problem orientated personality. One of the things that has worked well with me is kind of a, a <laughs> Like I have a forgiveness. Like it's it's what's the old adage? Like YouTube became YouTube because they asked for forgiveness, not permission. And as an entrepreneur, one of the biggest mistakes you can do first, you have to do your homework. Know what you can and can't do. But once you know what you can do, don't ask someone for permission. As soon as you ask someone for permission, especially if they're in a position to stop you or think they can stop you. The, the, the immediate response you're going to get from them is, no, you can't do that. Can I do that? No. Can I sit? Good example go to a restaurant. Hi, do you mind if I sit there? Very often they say, no, I'm sorry, the section's closed. Can you sit over here? Wait, wait for the, the server to wait the, the host to serve you. So it's, people are programmed to say no. So as an entrepreneur, one of the, some of the early ones that I've had is like uh, when I was in Miami, we had this bottle I was testing the bottle and our bottles got stuck at customs came in from italy something happened i'm involved in this event i promise we're going to have bella principessa at princi principessa at this time um, at the event and uh, we've got no bottles but thank god i had the foresight i had i think i had two empty bottles in my briefcase Something I learned from the guy in Hollywood that just assume that the, the, the airport's going to lose your luggage. And if you've got an important meeting that relies on, in on this case, the bottles, make sure you have a backup plan. So all I had was two bottles and they were empty. So you couldn't even drink them. They were prototypes. So what I, had, what I did over these days was basically take a bottle. Every time we're already backstage, we have, we have good access already, like me and my friends. And I had a photographer with me. And literally, I would go up to talent, introduce myself, put the bottle in their hands, have them take a photo, take the bottle back out of their hand, and then go to the next person. And for like two days, while our stock was stuck at customs, we got some fantastic images of great-looking men and women engaging with our, our brand. Right, that was our backup plan. So again, forgiveness, not permission. And then to, sh- to kind of reinforce that, when I went to New York and I met the uh the, the woman that headed up um sponsorships for IMG at the time, uh, said to me, Michael, listen, I saw what you did in Miami. I'm very impressed that you're scrappy and can get shit done, but don't do that here in New York. I'm like, What do you mean? She goes, We're IMG, don't talk to the talent. I'm like, Well, what if they talk to me? And they're like well, like, like couldn't answer. So of course, I get to New York, and exactly the same thing happens. I, I, I get siloed where I, I'm, I can't. You can't talk to anybody. You can only do this. You've got to ask for permission. And I'm like, I'm not used to doing things. I used to. Do, I do things at my own pace. Like we move fast. So there's one individual that is trying to say no and control what we're paying for and what we're not paying for. And as an entrepreneur, quickly find out who's in charge. Who are the gatekeepers? It was a big fashion show for New York Fashion Week. Who's in charge? I tip the girls that are running the the door, the, you know, letting people into the the, the VIP fashion shows. Yeah. They're choosing who goes in the front row. So I've already tipped them. I've tipped the security downstairs. I've tipped the people. I've, you know, the people that are, are forgotten about, that are not important, are actually really important. So I make sure I look after those people. They're my friends. So suddenly before I know it, she's saying you can't do something. i am rolled up with 10, 15 people. The women that are running the front, Ah, oh, Michael, how are you? What's going on? Who are you with? There's 100 people waiting to get in. We roll in. We got front row. We haven't even paid for the event. But the point I'm making is out of that, suddenly I run into Christy Brinkley, who has a Prosecco brand as well. I run into um, her her agent. The people around them, and suddenly all the people that were telling us no, you can't speak to now we are talking to those people. If I would have just done as I was told, would I have built those relationships? No, definitely right? not. So these are things. I mean, these are, these are anecdotes. These are we, and this happens. To be fair, this happens often whenever, whenever we do things. Just you know, it's when you've got hard money on the line and you paid for access. It's really up to you as an entrepreneur to step up. If you sit on the back seat and think, I paid for stuff, I'm important, I'm going to wait for them to go and do it for me, you will lose money. Right? When you understand that you've got hard money on the line, you need to get some value out of what you paid, do not rely on anybody. <laughs> Just don't get it done. What's the worst thing that can happen? You've upset somebody. Hey, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. How can I make it up to you? Fair point. Very fair. Now,
1: in fairness, you've got to have balls to do that. Personally, my persona or my profile wouldn't allow me to
0: do that and then it's, it's uh, being an entrepreneur i get right first of all being an entrepreneur being an entrepreneur in a for a, an fmcg brand being an entrepreneur for a brand that is positioned for like my sister is involved in the business right she is the ultimate bella principessa she's a fantastic brand ambassador she's got a beautiful network of friends she's one of these women that you can put anywhere and like she'll go to a top hotel or restaurant and perhaps someone will blow her off. And before she knows it, you know, the owner of the hotel or the general manager is like, wait, who are you? What's going on? Let me, ha- how can I help you? Let's do something, right? And so that personality type is the personality type for a lot of the, you know, the tastemaker audience that that are, are used to being on the guest list. Like we can't be everything to everybody on day one, right? We, we have to build a community of tastemakers, understand that those personalities of tastemakers are not used to hearing the word no. They're used to being treated with care, with respect, with um, a level of uh, like specialness. They like they feel more special, whether they are or they're not, but recognizing that that's a personality type and creating a brand that appeals to them right, is a challenge. And also being then learning that. Tra- I mean, by, by the way, when I first started, I didn't have the what do you call bulls of steel? Maybe I, I'd like to think of, maybe I always had that, but it, it's a learned, it's something you have to learn, right? Like the first time you go up to someone cold and introduce yourself, like maybe that's really difficult, but you do that three or four times. Uh, and it gets a bit easier. You do it 10 times. It becomes, easier. I've done it all my life. My dad pushed me to do it. Perhaps when I was a young guy, when I was 14, 15 years old, I remember being with him on a holiday with my friends. And there's these beautiful girl teenagers, right? We're teenagers, 14, 15 sitting on the beach next to us. And I'm, I'm so scared of these girls. Like I'm dying to talk to them. My dad just explains to me the facts of life and literally forced me to go and speak to them, like, you know, like pushing me over there. I may be, I mean, I pretty was pretty physical, if I remember. But the point is those kind of things that you have that you either have someone as a young man pushing you to do things that feel uncomfortable and then you realize once you start speaking once you have as long as you're not creeping you actually have something genuine to talk about right mm-hmm. right they don't have to get something out of the tran of the it's not a transactional conversation always but just saying hi to people right getting used to like that's one thing i can maybe recommend to entrepreneurs right it's really easy to get stuck in the bubble like i've been there i'm there often right i get into a project like prosecco.com i got into this project and i spent hundreds of hours building this website, designing the website with, with, with my team, um, writing the content, rewriting the content, figuring out we have limited budget for for images and video. How do we get the most out of that, right? And you get into this basement kind of mentality where I'm stuck in the basement. I'm not seeing anyone in the real world. And if that becomes habit, suddenly it's really hard to go and say hi to people because you're isolated. And it's very easy as an entrepreneur to be isolated. Um, getting out of that and just going to the coffee shop and and forcing yourself to say hi to the person making coffee, saying good morning to people in the line, right? They're also waiting for coffee. These little things are very easy to do and, and definitely as an entrepreneur, give you some energy to move forward and then have some confidence to tell people we're the greatest because that's what you need to do. And this is my challenge now. This is why I'm raising capital is because, you know, I can be as enthusiastic as I want about where where i see prosecco the category going the potential for for bella principessa right the gaps in the market the different price points that we're catering to with our other brands which we haven't talked about but like there's a lot of opportunity for for storytelling like storytelling is really where i'm at i guess maybe this coming out of this whole podcast that we're doing like i like telling stories sometimes you go off on a bit of a tangent like it's uh it has value right? But and at that point where you can only, I'm one person. I can only tell the story so many times. So I have to, for me to tell the story and get out there, I need to touch hands with you personally, tell you the story. I evangelize you. Then I meet another person. I evangelize another person, touch another person. Hopefully those people, I did a good enough job that they might not remember Bella Principessa, but maybe they remember Prosecco.com or just Prosecco. That's enough. Cause they'll eventually remember our bottle is the one with the butterflies painted on the bottle with the flowers and the butterflies, Right. So now the purpose of raising capital is to raise, is to find like-minded stakeholders that share my vision, can have value, and can also beat the drums and say, hey, look at us. We have the greatest brand of Prosecco.
1: And that's where we are today. So last couple of questions from me, Michael, because I am conscious of time. I always ask this question to every guest, and I ask you to take a moment to reflect on Michael of today versus Michael of coming out fresh out of uni what's that one thing you wish you had known when you'd started out
0: so i have this conversation quite regularly okay um it's a very challenging conversation to have right because as an entrepreneur i go through periods of feast and famine sometimes things are great other times i'm in the sahara desert treading water fighting for my life hoping that the hard work that I'm putting in will pay off in one month, two months, three months, for whatever that is to then put fuel back in the tank. And that's been, I've, I've lived that life since I was 20 something. Right. So on the flip side of that, the recommendation, which I pretty should have heeded. So I had a couple of friends of mine that are older than me, that I would have been 16, 17 at the time. And they said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a, media mogul. I want to be in Hollywood. I want to be in marketing, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, I'm 16. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, but I'm creative. I'm a marketer naturally. I think that's pretty what I gravitate towards. And I like to create. And they said, Mikey, I hear you. I know you, my advice, go work for an investment bank or trading floor, whatever it is in the financial sector, make as much money as you can, let them burn you out. If necessary, you'll retire at 30. And then if you really still love this business, you will have capital behind you. You can figure it out. Now at 16 or even 20, the idea of waiting till 30, it seems like 30, you're old, right? <laughs> like 30 seems old. Like now 30 is not, right? But, you know, when I'm 20, 30 seemed old. And so I didn't pursue that path, right, of, of working in the financial sector. And so the flip side is sometimes I, I think back like, okay, what would I be doing now? Or where would I be now? If I would have gone and said, you know what, for the first 10, 15 years of my life, of professional life, I would have gone into the financial sector, made bank, and pretty retired or semi-retired looking for investments and things to do, which is a lot of my contemporaries at my age have done, right? But the other side of that is you can't look at things that way. Because if I would have done that, all the, everything I know about marketing, growth marketing, branding, content creation, product creation, People even right, like I would not have learned that skill set, so definitely I wouldn't be who I am today or where I am today. But it's it's definitely the the idea of being an entrepreneur is definitely not for any for everyone. And if I could advise any anyone considering that path, if you're a young person, if you're coming out of university, don't do it on day one. And it's really tempting to do it because of social media that you think, oh, you know, all these people online that seem to be doing nothing and earning. Money and driving cars and blah and going on holidays, right? It's not really what it seems. I mean, it's not to say that some aren't doing that, but it's not what it seems. My advice is try and figure out the highest paying career sector you can figure out. Get a job, be employed. Don't worry about paying the bills, and learn and and climb up that ladder. And then just know that you're going to be there till you're thirty, 35. Right at that point, if you're a creative person, you want to be an entrepreneur or you want to figure out what that side hustle is, you have a lot of room to figure it out. But as an entrepreneur, it's been really, you know, it's challenging, right? It it really, people don't understand, but you you think, oh, I can be an entrepreneur, I can work my own hours. I pretty Sometimes I'll do 18, 20-hour days, like regularly. This is not like once in a while, right? Largely because if you want something done, you have to do it yourself. Right. And so the, obviously the next round of capital, the round of capital I'll take will help take some of that pressure away. But I know that doesn't really like that next round of capital I take, the expectations on me are going to be great, which is expected as an entrepreneur. And I want those expectations. I want to exceed those expectations. But I also know that now part of growing the brand and going kind of growing that distribution network means that I will have to be living out of a suitcase for the next two years. Right. It's by the way, it's an exciting way to live if you can. And it's not for everybody, right? So the idea of, I'm going to go to this city, I'm going to go set that city up, I'll stay there for a week, or i stay there for three months, however long it takes to set up the satellite team, and get to know all the major influences for us in terms of retail, restaurants, bars, clubs, local influences in the community. understand, know them personally, touch hands with them personally, evangelize them personally, right? And show the local team what is possible. Right. That's what's expected of me. And that's where I expect to be over the next two years. But that's, that's a lot of moving around. Right. So again, that's not for everybody. If you have a family, uh, you know, wife, kids, like the idea that you're going to be on the road doing that for the next two years, is probably not going to be very, your wife is not going to be very happy to hear that. Your girlfriend's not going to be happy to hear that. Yeah. That completely makes sense. Here's another one for you. Then. Sure. One of our core
1: values is we love to learn. So I always ask, every guest. How do you learn? Who do you take your advice from? You've already mentioned one book that you read, but if you have any other recommended reading videos or other
0: podcasts that you listen to, Michael. It's interesting. So, again, we're using the entrepreneur word. I I really don't use this word very often, but now we're talking about it, right? It seems like I never have enough time in the day. It's very hard for me to switch off and read a book. Very often. Uh, I will listen to podcasts or Audible when I'm traveling to the gym or driving the car, going somewhere because I want to catch up on what's on or or learn something. Or now I'll start using AI tools if I want to understand, you know, a 400, 500 page book and understand the core principles of that book, takeaways, anything related to that. I'll use, you know, the AI tools to help me understand that in a few thousand words, perhaps, Mm -hmm. right? The podcasts that I like listening to are quite varied. I quite it's weird, As I've got older, I kind of got into politics. Not for any other reason, except just things don't seem to make sense. Like common sense is not common anymore in in 2023. And certainly for the last several years, it seems that way. And so there's a few really interesting podcasters. One is, um, is a guy called Patrick Bet-David, who has a podcast called Value Entertainment. Really fascinating, successful guy. And he's that, he's kind of taken that role on where he's a mentor, educator, challenger. He'll interview anyone from ex-mob bosses to, uh, Robert Kennedy, right? So various different, different people. He went to go and interview, uh, the Tate brothers in Romania recently, controversial figures, right? So just fascinating viewpoints to listen to that seem to just resonate with me in terms of, recognizing that common sense is not common and he's just talking common sense. And also like his whole thing and, and like him that I like listening to hold themselves to a very high standard. I hold myself to a very high standard. Like my pursuit, I have a pursuit of personal excellence. Maybe that sounds cheesy, but I'm never satisfied. Right. And that's a really tough trait. Like I'm, I'm my own worst critic. So I don't need other people to beat me up because I've probably already beaten myself up because I know I could have done better. Right. But recognizing that and kind of also being kind to yourself, which is also walking that walking that path and also just taking care of yourself. Right. Like for a period of time, like I I was always into sports and and health early on. And I'm very fortunate that my father encouraged me to be that person. And so it became part of my everyday lifestyle. I then went through a phase in my life where certain circumstances, things happened to me that I just got out of that habit. I just, it, it wasn't enjoyable. It, so once you, once you fall out of that habit, it's a problem, right? And so I'm fortunate that, you know, this year, you know, one of my more recent friends in the last few years has kind of encouraged me to get back into being that former self, recognizing in me what I, who I was and, and taking me to the gym. Sounds silly. I got myself to the gym, but baby steps, you know, to get back into these things and get into habits it's really easy to get into good habits if someone's helping you get into those habits as your buddy promoter, essentially, right? So recognizing that some days I'm just like, I'm too tired, I've got 16 hours of work, I've got to get done, there's deadlines that have to happen. Forcing myself to say, you know what? I'm going to go and just get it done. Even if it's 30, 45 minutes, little and often, it's made a huge difference in the way I'm approaching my life and my business since I, since I started turning that on again this year.
1: Cool. I'm going to move on to the last question today, and it comes okay. from a previous guest. The question comes from Rachel, who is from Skywave Gym. And the question Rachel has left you, Michael, is what's been your biggest adventure in your brand so
0: far? Rachel from Skywave Gym? Gin. Oh, gin. She's a, she's gin. a drink. Oh, she's Sky- still there, yeah. Well, first of all, hi, Rachel. Great name. I will check out your brand and definitely try it and love gin. Uh, my biggest, what well, has been my biggest adventure? Yes. So far, I'm going to sound sappy if I say this, but it's, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an honest answer. So I've done a lot of things. I've done a lot of dangerous things growing up as a teenager where I thought I was immortal, had those adrenaline rushes. Then as I got busier trying to build businesses, you find less time. But one of the biggest adventures I've had in recent years, sadly, Not ongoing, but you know, finding someone that makes you feel loved and important and special and puts a smile on your face, as happened to me, was an adventure every day that I was able to kind of experience that. And part of the challenges of being an entrepreneur is that it puts tolls on relationships and perhaps we behave sometimes we're not always our best self, right? But finding someone, again I sound really sappy, but finding someone that help me be that person makes every day feel like an adventure over and above. Okay. Let me go rock climbing or let me go uh, to a beautiful resort or stuff like that. All the stuff I can do, you can pay for that. Those mm-hmm. are paid transactional experiences, which by the way, you can share with people, right? And that's really the key doing things on your own. It's okay. Right. It's fun maybe, but doing things with people you really want to be around, that's kind of a rare special, adventurous kind of sensation that stays with you. And that's why people, that's why, again, our ethos for our brand, right, is with the the future campaigns that we run, if we can create actionable experiences and emotions that resonate with people, right, whether I'm hosting a Bella Principesa drinks party or taking a squad of Bella Principesa influencers on an adventure to Venice, right, or wherever, like, it's a spirit of adventure. And connection and experience, which comes which comes back to being a successful brand. Probably that's why Rachel values Adventures as part of her what's that, sky, sky Gin? Sky Wave Gin. Sky Wave Gin. So Sky, Blue Skies, Wave, Rolling. Great name. Love it. Cool. Just want to say thank you for your
1: time today, Michael. It's been great getting uh, just a small insight into you, into the brand. And I just want to say thank you for your time on the recording today.
0: Thank you. It was really, it was great chatting. I hope we didn't go into too many, too many different directions. Really, I really was like talking to an old friend. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for listening to The Evolving Accountant. You can find out more and get show notes for this and all our other episodes at theevolvingaccountant.co.uk.